you guys can turn to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be continuing our journey through the book. We're looking at a really short passage this morning. If you look at the numbers there, it's just three verses. Really short. It's Paul's prayer for the Philippian church. So we're going to study a prayer this morning. We're going to think deeply about the nature of prayer. I don't know if that's something you do on a regular basis. Most Christians pray on a regular basis, like every day, but how often do you actually think about what's going on when you pray? Has it ever occurred to you that, that prayer is actually revelatory? When you pray, you are actually revealing what you want most in life. Have you thought about that? Your prayers, what you pray for, reveals what you want most. Now, you can see that easily when you talk to kids. Look at what they pray for. So when I was a kid, when I was real little, uh, there was one thing I prayed for every single night, like without fail. It's the one thing from growing up that I remember praying for because I did it every single night. I would pray and beg God, please, God, give me good dreams and no nightmares because I was terrified of nightmares. And so on my bed, as I was getting ready for bed, what did I want most in the whole world in that moment? I wanted to not have nightmares. And so that was the center of my prayer life. What we pray for reveals what we want most. A few weeks ago, I was getting my son ready for bed. He's in third grade now, by the way. And, and we're praying, and, and typically I pray for him. But, but once in a while, he'll add something at the end of the prayer, his own prayer, which he did that night. And he prayed, God, please let it snow tonight so I don't have to go to school tomorrow. <laughs> amen. And after we said amen, I looked him in the eyes and said, buddy, I'm, I'm so sorry to tell you, but it doesn't snow in August in Texas, to which he looked at me and immediately responded, but dad, didn't you say God can do anything? Wow. (laughs) There's a theology trump card from your eight-year-old son. Yes, boy, he did. So you go right ahead and pray for snow. Now, why was my son praying for a snow day? Because what he wanted most of all in life at that moment was a day off from school. What we pray for reveals what we want most. So for us adults, what do we typically pray for? Our greatest desires in life have grown more serious the older that we are. So when you think about what adults pray for, I think it tends to break down into three things that we pray most often for. We pray for healing for ourselves or for those we love from some illness. Um, We pray for success when we or someone we love faces like a big test or a, a job interview, something like that. And we pray for relief from pain for ourselves and for others, whether it's emotional pain, physical pain, um, relational pain, whatever it might be. So those three things, healing and success and relief, it's important to note all three of those are really good things to pray for. In fact, the Bible tells you, you should pray for those things in your own life and in the lives of those you care about. Pray for healing and and success and for relief from pain. But the question is, does God want that prayer to be the center of our prayer life? Should that be the focus? Relief and healing and success. Should that be the center of what we ask God for? Well, this morning we're going to see what Paul puts at the center. We're going to look at his prayer for the Philippians. And I've mentioned this before. In the ancient world, it costs a lot of money to write. It's hard to do. So they didn't write long stuff. And so this prayer is just three verses long. And and when you have to keep it short, you focus. And so in this prayer, Paul is going to focus on what is most important. What should the center of our prayer life be? What should we want above all else from God. So look with me, we're going to pick it up in verse 9, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, And this I pray, 
that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now you you may have noticed Paul doesn't mention any of those three things that we so often do. There is nothing in here about healing or success or relief from pain. Now, it's important to note, in other places in Scripture, including in Paul's own writings, he does pray for those things. He wants you to pray for healing and success and relief. You're actually told to do that in books like James, chapter 5. You should pray for those things. But when Paul could only choose one thing to focus on, the one most important thing to ask God for in all of life What does he choose? Growth in love. That trumps everything else. To Paul, the most important thing in your life, the most important thing to ask God for is that you would grow in love. Now that actually fits really well with what we learned last week. You might have, you might remember I introduced you to the research of a guy named Abraham Maslow. He looked at how human beings of all races, all cultures, all languages, all economic levels share five basic needs. And, and in this hierarchy of five needs, you recall, what is the topmost need? The, the greatest need of all among human beings, it is growth. I use a fancy term, self-actualization. It just means growing to become, in a sense, the best version of you. Growing to become all that God intended you to become. That is the highest and greatest thing. And that agrees perfectly with what Paul is praying. The, the thing that God wants for you more than anything else, even more than healing and success and relief from pain, is growth. God wants you to grow up into everything he designed you to become. God wants that even more than all these other things that we so typically pray for. So God's great desire for you is growth. And since God is your creator, he gets to decide growth in what? He gets to set the goal. So what goal has God set for your life? Well, we've already seen it. God's goal for your growth is love. Above everything else, God wants you to grow in your capacity to love. Now, to love whom? Is this love for God, love for your spouse, love for your kids, love for people in church, love for people in the world? Paul doesn't specify because he wants to leave it broad. He's talking about love for everyone. All of those things would be included. Paul wants their love for God to grow, their love for their spouses to grow, their love for their kids to grow, their love for their neighbors to grow, their love for the church to grow, their love for the world to grow. In every way, God wants your love to grow. Now, at first blush, you look at it and say, that that sounds great. I like that. In fact, pretty much everyone in the world would like that. That sounds good. We live in a culture that is fixated on love. This sounds great. The problem is we don't tend to understand what that word means. To understand what Paul is saying in this passage, we have to define that word because we live in a culture that misunderstands what love means. In fact, I would say there's no word in the Bible more crucial to redefine than love. You've got to understand what the Bible means by it because it is very different. In fact, I'll show you in a moment. It's practically the opposite of what your society means by that word. So let's talk about this for a little bit. What does it mean in 21st century America to say that you love? 
someone or something? Well, I think if you ask most Americans what the word love means, they would they give you one of two answers, um, two options here. Love, to love, means that you have a strong desire for something. That's option number one. And it's what we mean when I say something like, I love tacos. When I say I love tacos, I mean I have a strong desire for tacos, which is true. It's almost lunch. I've just made you all love tacos. You want to eat them. So that's one possible common way love is used. Refer to a strong desire you have to consume something. Second way that, that love can be used is, is to describe an intense feeling of affection you have for someone else. So in America today, if we were to say John loves Amy, what we mean is John has a strong feeling of affection for Amy, and that's why he wants to spend every waking moment with her, because it feels good. So the common thread with both of those possible meanings in our culture for the word love is that in America, love is all about a feeling I have. Love is a a feeling I get when I experience that thing or when I'm with that person. Love according to our society, this is the key thing to recognize, love according to our society is centered on the experience I get from loving that other person. It's all about me. It's about what I get from this relationship, the feeling I get, the affection I get, the satisfaction I get. That is the exact opposite of what the Bible means by the word love. So there are actually multiple Greek words behind the word love when you see it in English in your Bible. But in this passage, it's the Greek word agape. That's the highest form of love. It's, it's the love that God has for us. So what is agape love, this, this love of God? Well, you have to look at other passages that define this word so that you understand what God means by love in contrast to what our world means by love. So I'm going to share with you the three most important passages I know of for defining agape love. The first one is the one you hear at like every wedding. So you've probably heard this. It's the most famous passage defining love in scripture. It's 1 Corinthians 13. Here it is. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That, that is really a great passage, probably the best definition of agape love we get anywhere in scripture. But here's the thing that I want to make sure you are recognizing. Our world would say that John loves Amy because Amy is patient and kind. Scripture says John loves Amy because John chooses to be patient and kind. Do you see the reversal? It's about what John is choosing to give to Amy, not what Amy is giving to John. Complete reversal. Here's the second key passage for understanding biblical love. Matthew 5, 43 to 44. This is Jesus speaking. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What Jesus is showing us is that love, agape love, has nothing to do with the worthiness of the one who is loved. Right? In, in America, we understand like loving people who are nice to you. You love your friends. You love your family. That makes perfect sense. But the Bible goes so much further. The Bible says, no, love your enemies. Are they worthy of that love? No, of course not. 
They, they've hurt you. They've been mean to you, but you still love them. So biblical love is based on a conscious choice to love even those who are unworthy of it. It has nothing to do with the worthiness of the person you claim to love. Okay? Third passage, John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now we're really seeing how opposite the biblical definition is from the cultural definition. Because biblical love says, I actually, I take my satisfaction and my happiness and I sacrifice it for you. I'm not getting it from you. The basic idea of biblical love is it's about self-sacrifice, not self-satisfaction. It's about what I sacrifice for you, not what I get from you. Okay, so now with those three passages in mind, now we're ready to define what the Bible means by love. Here it is. It is the choice to value someone so highly that you sacrifice for their good. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. That's incredibly important to understand that that love, biblically speaking, is a choice, not a feeling. Now, often feelings will follow, but... If you've been married for a long time, you know it's not always going to be that feelings follow the choice. You're going to have some days when you wake up and you do not feel affection for your spouse. Sorry for you young people who are in love and not married yet and you think every day is going to be happily ever after. No, it won't. No, why? Because you're marrying someone who is human and humans are sinful. And so your spouse will hurt you probably more deeply than anyone ever has because you're closer to them than you've ever been to anyone. And so they're going to hurt you and it's going to tick you off and you're going to wake up not feeling affection towards them. And so our world says, well, I don't feel affection anymore. So what does that mean? Love is dead. The Bible says, no, your love was never based on a feeling of affection. Your love was based on your choice to sacrifice for their good. And that's not dependent on feelings. Some days you'll get the feelings. Some days you won't. Doesn't matter. Not based on feelings. It's also, you notice, it's not based on the worth of the object. It's based on your choice to hold them up, whether or not they're worthy of it or not. And that should make sense because think about the love of God for us. His agape love for us. How many days of your life have you been worthy of God's love for you? What is zero? I don't have time to walk you through all the biblical picture of it, so I'm just going to tell you none. Not for you, not for me. There's only one person has ever been worthy of, and it was Jesus, and that's not us. So you've never been worthy of God's love, but God chose to love you anyways. That's what agape love does. It says, yeah, the object here, this person, is not worthy. It does not matter. I will regard them as worthy. I will treat them as if they are. I will sacrifice self for them. And that's exactly what God did. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own agape love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The key here is notice Christ. He's sacrificing himself when we were not his friends. When we were not in any way worthy. We were anti-worthy. We deserve punishment. But he died for us to give us eternal life instead. That is what agape love looks like. It is giving. It is sacrificial. Now, most of us are not going to be called like Jesus to actually die for the people we claim to love. So what is love going to look like for us on a day-to-day basis? Very practical. What does it look like for you to love someone else? Um, Over the years, I've arrived at the conclusion that the simplest way to define what love practically looks like in life is give. 
It's that word. To love is to give. So if I say, I love my wife, Julie, God looks down and says, okay, well, it's nice to say, prove it. How do I prove it? I give. If all I do is say I love Julie, well, it's meaningless, pointless. The word doesn't matter. What matters is that I give. I give my time. I give my effort. I give my emotional energy. I give up my rights and my desires to serve her and hold her up. Irrespective of whether I feel like she's particularly worthy on that day, I make that choice to give. That is what love is. If you say, I love God, God will say, show me. How do you show? You give. You lay your life at his feet. If you say, I love God, what does that mean? It means that you lay your time, your skills, your treasure, your resources, everything at his feet, and you say, God, do with all of me as you see fit. That's love. It's not the word. It's the choice to give. So that's the essence of biblical love. We give of ourselves to bless the one we claim to love. Now, how much of that kind of selfless, giving love are you supposed to have? Like, how do you know when you've grown into a loving enough person? Well, it's a trick question, because look again at verse 9. This, I pray that your love may abound still more and more. More and more in English and in Greek is just a way of saying there is no bar. There is no perfect amount. You have to keep growing. For the rest of your life, God's desire for you is to continue to expand the capacity you have for selfless, sacrificial love. You're never done growing in that direction. Okay? So, God's goal for our lives is to continue to expand our capacity for selfless love towards Him, towards one another, and towards the world at large. But... Paul does clarify and qualify this love, this agape love that God wants to grow in your life. It is guided by knowledge and discernment. Okay, so Paul adds this clarification, this qualifier. Okay, the kind of agape love we're talking about, it is always guided by knowledge and discernment. Now we've got to define those terms, just like we did for love. What is knowledge? It's not, for you students, it's not knowledge like you have of a subject. It's not like knowledge, knowing facts about math or accounting. That's not what the biblical word knowledge is means the biblical word knowledge is it's going to be focused on things that are of ultimate reality like knowing god knowing about god knowing god's word but biblical knowledge is always based in experience it means that you don't just know about god you you actually know god you don't just know about his word you know his word you've seen it work in your life you've applied it to your life and seen how it works out So when we think about knowledge in the Bible, it is understanding something deeply through experience. That's the idea of knowledge, okay? So that's knowledge. Now how about discernment? What does discernment mean? Well, actually, Paul defines it. Look at the beginning of verse 10. Discernment is so that you may approve the things that are excellent. It's as simple as that. Discernment is the ability to figure out what is excellent and what is not. So you can discern between the good and the bad. You can discern between the good and the best. You, you can see the difference between those things. You can figure out what to do that is excellent and best. So when you combine those two together, knowledge and discernment, I think what you get is actually wisdom. That's what wisdom is. It is the combination of this deep experiential understanding with discernment. They come together so that you are always able to make the best choice. It's the idea of wisdom. You're always able to make the best choice for the one you claim to love, right? So 
Paul wants us to grow in our wisdom so that we are always choosing that which is most beneficial to the ones we claim to love, to God, to others, to the world at large. So that's God's goal for your life. He wants you to grow in love that is guided by wisdom. You need both of them. You can't choose between, you can't have like, I, I pick love or I pick wisdom. You have to have both of them. They come together, match that. You've got to have both of them. When you have love guided by wisdom, what you have, if you want to think about it, it's like God has turned you into a mighty river. So think about a really big, mighty river. You've got all this water flowing through the banks of this river and watering the land. Big rivers like the Brazos River, they, they water millions of acres of land. They bring life to plants, to animals, to people. It's a really beneficial thing. That's what love guided by wisdom is. Now, what if you take away the wisdom part? If you just have love. Well, what you've done is you've removed the banks from the river. And what do you get when you have no banks? You get a flood. That's what a flood is. A whole lot of water, no banks to guide it. That water ends up destroying things. It, it just overwhelms the fields and the plants and brings death. And what God wants us to understand is that love must be guided by wisdom. We have to always be thinking about what is true and what is best. If you have love without wisdom, you end up hurting people. And so very practically, let's just touch on this for a second because it's a, it's a common thing in our culture that we need to recognize. If you say that you love someone, then when you see that person make a choice that based on what you understand from Scripture is a bad choice, a destructive choice, then if you claim to love them, you have to speak up. Now, our world does not agree with that. In America today, to say that you love someone demands that you accept as good whatever they want to do. But if you don't accept as good what they want, then you are intolerant, and that is the opposite of love. No. no, the Bible is very clear. That is not true. If you love someone, then you always speak truth graciously to them. You, you do. And, and the, the funny thing is we know that as parents with our kids. My son did not want to go to school on that day a couple weeks ago. And so we woke up and God didn't perform some great miracle. There was no snow on the ground. And so I wake up and, and my son says, I don't want to go to school. I'm not going to go to school today. Would it be loving for me to accept as good the choice he has made and simply say, I love you, son, so do as you see fit. Have fun staying home. Well, no, I would be cursing my son. And I'm pretty sure at some point they'd like put me in jail for never sending my son to school. You can't do that. We know that as parents, we forget it when we're thinking about adults. When you claim to love a person who's grown up and, and is making a bad choice, a choice you believe is bad because of what you understand from Scripture, well, it's never okay to force them. It's never okay to shame them. It's never okay to compel them. But it is not love if you silently choose to accept what they're doing as if it were good. That's a curse, the Bible tells us. You need to speak up. Now, how you speak up, what you say, how often you say it, when and where you say it, that's really hard. You need to pray a lot. You need to ask for wisdom and counsel. There's no one right answer there. That takes a lot of, of incredible thought. However, to stay silent and ignore what they're doing when you know it's harmful, it's not love. Because true biblical love is always guided by wisdom. It means it compels us to speak up. So love must be guided by wisdom or a flood that doesn't do anyone any good. However, on the flip side, 
You can't just have all wisdom and no love. Because then what are you? You're a dry ditch. No one wants that. You're not doing any good to anyone, no matter how big and grand your banks are. If there's no water, there's no life. Paul actually talks about that explicitly back in that 1 Corinthians 13 chapter that's read at every wedding. We don't read all of it typically, like verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, you see plenty of this in culture. People who are brilliant, people who are wise and intelligent, but aren't loving. And what do they end up doing to the world? Well, they just leave bodies everywhere they go. They just destroy people. That's, that's not beneficial. That's not good. You must have love and wisdom both. God will not accept choosing between one of them. God, but God's goal for your life is for you to grow in selfless love that is always guided by wisdom so that you always choose to do that which is most beneficial for the ones you claim to love. Now, let's be honest. That kind of love is hard. It's painful. It requires great effort. It requires great sacrifice by its definition. If love is sacrifice, then the more you love, the more you're going to sacrifice. So why? Why should we want to grow in this selfless, sacrificial love that's going to require great effort on our part? Well, Paul actually talks about that in the bulk of the prayer. So the second two verses there, the majority of the prayer, is all about why it is worth the effort for you to grow in selfless love. And so let's, let's look at those reasons. The first reason Paul gives us for growing in selfless love is at the beginning of verse 11. Our fruitfulness in this life increases the more that we grow in love. He says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. Paul's saying that as you grow in love, God fills your life more and more through the power of Jesus with the fruit of righteousness. Now, fruit of righteousness is just a churchy way of saying good deeds. God is going to fill your life with an ever-growing quantity of good deeds that bless the world. That's the idea here. So, think about it again through the grid of a river. Let's imagine that, that when you become a Christian, when you accept Jesus as your Savior and you enter into the family of God, God, through His Spirit, He begins to grow this, this river of divine selfless love in you so that you begin to bless other people. But at first, you're kind of like the little stream out at Research Park. Have you seen it? If you haven't, I don't blame you. It's tiny. You could, wrap, like you could catch it in a gallon jug. Like it's really tiny little stream just trickling along. But it's a good thing. I mean, if you go out there, you'll see there's like dozens of trees that are watered by that stream. And I think there's like two families of ducks hanging out out there. So I mean, it's good. It's helping things. But, but God isn't content to leave you the size of the stream out at Research Park. He wants to grow your love, grow your capacity for selfless love towards others. And so over the years, he continues to grow you and expand your heart so that you are more and more loving, so that your life is full of more and more good selfless deeds for the good of the world until one day you wake up and look and you are the size of the Brazos River. Think about the Brazos River. It's massive. No person could stop that. It's, it's huge. It's so much water that it's watering countless trees and animals and millions of acres of cropland. It's an incredibly beneficial thing. So if you think about it, the little stream at Research Park and the Brazos River, they're both good things, but one is doing a whole lot better for the world. And that's what God wants for you. 
He wants to grow you into a mighty river of love that's guided by wisdom so that your life overflows into countless good deeds that bless people all around the world. You grow in love so you can grow in impact that you have for good in the world. So that's the first reason. Second reason Paul gives us. Reward in the next life. You see that at the end of verse 10. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. I think this is talking about our day of judgment when we stand before Jesus and he evaluates our lives to decide whether or not we receive reward. Now it's really important to clarify that that Jesus judging your deeds for reward is not how you get to heaven. Completely different. Getting to heaven has nothing to do with how loving you are or how many good deeds you perform. What does getting to heaven have to do with? Jesus, that's it. His good deed of dying on the cross for your sins and rising from the dead, that is why you get into heaven. When you say to God, yes, I believe Jesus died for me and rose from the dead so I could have eternal life as an absolutely free gift, then heaven is absolutely secure for you. It will never be in doubt. Okay, so you get heaven through Jesus, but once you get to heaven, so there'll be some day when you die and you stand in heaven, first thing that'll happen, as far as I can tell, is you'll stand before Jesus. You're already in heaven. That's not at, at stake. You'll stand before Jesus and he will evaluate your life and he'll be looking at your deeds. And the question in that judgment is whether or not he gives you his reward. He has a reward for you. He, he actually, he received a reward from God the Father and he wants to share it with all of us, but we have to be faithful. And what is that reward? It's called crowns and glory and honor and different places in scripture, but I don't know what it is. I just know it's really good. It's Jesus' own reward and you get to have it for eternity. But if you want to have it, you must grow in love. That's the only way. There is no other way you can please Jesus and earn his reward than if you grow in selfless love. Okay, so it results in reward in the next life. Third reason, it brings glory to God. That's the end of the prayer. Very short phrase at the end of verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. As you grow in love, guided by wisdom, you perform more and more good deeds in the world. And the result is that the world takes notice. They see Jesus at work in you and they glorify their heavenly father. And, and this shouldn't surprise us, this idea of growing in love, bringing glory to God. Jesus actually told us that's, that's what would bring him glory. We're told in John 13, by Jesus, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love. This selfless love for one another. That is what opens the eyes of the world to the truth of Jesus Christ. More than anything else, Jesus didn't say it's by all of your grand theology, by all of your biblical knowledge it's by your really pure moral character it's by all the all the things you're doing no it's it's by love that's the essence of what draws people to jesus it's our selfless love for one another the, the more that we grow to love one another and love the world the more people will see that jesus is doing something here selfless love is our primary witness to the truth of jesus christ So Paul wants you to understand, yes, growing in selfless love is hard. I would argue it's the hardest thing that will ever happen in your life because it means that more and more of your desires and rights are having to be put to death so that you can give more and more to others. That's painful. But Paul says it's worth it 
Because as you go through this process of, of love expanding in you, more of your selfishness, more of your pride being put to death so you can love people better, as you go through that process, you are more impactful on the world, you earn eternal reward, and you glorify God better than anything else. So it's worth it. Now, how do you actually do it? So how do you grow in this divine love guided by wisdom? Well, you may notice Paul doesn't tell you. There are no steps here. Do this, then do this, then do this to grow your love. Why are there no steps for growing in love? Well, because you can't grow yourself in this love that's guided by wisdom. We're actually told in the book of Galatians chapter 5, love is a fruit of the Spirit, meaning it's something that only the Holy Spirit can grow in you. You can't make it. There's no process to go through to expand love in your heart. It doesn't work that way. You must receive it. Only God can grow your agape love for him and for other people. And so the application for us is really very simple. Just do what Paul does. What does Paul do in this passage? He prays. He prays. He asks God, God, please grow the Philippians in love guided by wisdom. I'm sure Paul prayed that for himself and for everyone he ministered to. That was the core of his prayer. You got to ask God for it because you can't make it. And so what this is challenging us to do, it's kind of a paradigm change for us. When we go to the Lord in prayer, we should still pray for healing and success and relief from pain for ourselves and for those we love. That's all good stuff to pray for. But the center of your prayer life should be this. It should be asking God to grow your capacity for selfless love and the capacity of other people in your life to love. Pray this for your kids. I'm a dad. I have kids. It's so easy to slip into very worldly prayers for them and make my prayers all about their success at school and let them have lots of friends and let them stay out of trouble. And that's good to pray for, but that shouldn't be the center of my prayer for them because it's not what God wants most for them. What does he want most? That my kids would become loving. That's his greatest goal for them. So pray that for your kids. Let that be the center of your prayer. God, with everything else that you do in my kids' lives, please, above all, help them to grow in your selfless love. Pray that for your spouse. Pray that for your friends, your roommates, your co-workers. Pray that for everybody. That is the essence of what God wants. That, in a sense, is a success in life, is that you grow in love guided by wisdom. So pray that regularly. So I'm going to actually give us a few minutes. We have about five minutes by my clock before we are out of here to go eat tacos. So let's pray. So I'm going to give you some time of silence. I hope you're okay with that. Just being silent, being by yourself. I'm going to want you to bow your head. And I want you to spend a few minutes. And I want you to pray. And I want you to ask God to grow this this capacity for selfless love that is guided by, by wisdom and truth. And I want you to pray it for yourself. Okay, spend some time doing that. Pray that God would, would grow your love more than anything else. He would do whatever it takes in your life to grow you in this selfless agape love. Then pray it for your family and pray for them by name. Pray it for your friends. Pray for them by name. Now, some, if some of your family and friends don't know Jesus yet, pray that God would open their eyes, draw them into the family, help them to come to know Jesus and then grow their love. And then please pray for that for Grace Bible Church because there is nothing more important for our family here at Grace than that we would grow in love. So let's spend some time in prayer.
Lord God, I thank you that you do love us, even though we're not worthy of it. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us an example of love that will we'll never match. You've demonstrated what love looks like when you died for us so that we could have eternal life as a gift. We, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would do the hard work in each of us to grow love. We pray that you would chip away at the pride and the selfishness in each of our hearts that keeps us from loving fully, that, that prevents us from loving you like we should, loving one another like we should, loving the world like we should. We just pray that you would keep chipping away, that you would remove anything that hinders love in our lives. We pray that you would expand our capacity to love you and to love one another in, in this church and to love the people out in the world. I pray that you would grow our capacity for love to, to the extent that when the world looks at Grace Bible Church, that they would be amazed at how we love one another. I pray that that would be the thing that stands out about our church is our selfless love for each other and for this community. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would work in us this week, that you would help us to, to pray this prayer often for ourselves, for our, for our kids, for our roommates, for our friends. I, I pray that this would become the center of our prayer life and the core of our ambition. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to want to grow in love as much as you want it for us. I pray, Heavenly Father, help us to be a church that loves, that loves you, loves each other, that loves this world, even when, it causes, even when it requires sacrifice and effort and pain. Help us to love like Jesus loves. All for his glory and renown, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.